Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in a Raw, and welcome to part two of my ongoing series called uh, The Diversity of Trans. My guest today is a person who I have recently met. Uh, Renee and I go back, oh, a, f- a few months. Um, she has helped me uh, think through the transgender conversation by uh, looking at some stuff I've written and editing it and just gave such amazing feedback on some things I was working on last fall that I decided, hey, I have to have you on the podcast. In fact, you have to be part of this ongoing series because Renee has a, again, uh, Renee is part of that large umbrella of diversity. And I am so excited for you to listen to this conversation. Um, Renee is, um, uh, she's a theology student. She's super smart, uh, pursuing a, uh, PhD in theology and has a, uh, a really kind of different journey. Um, and I, I I'm not going to spoil it. I'll let Renee, um, talk about her own journey. Uh, we end up talking about all kinds of interesting things that stem from her journey, including gender stereotypes, um, why she, you know, experiences gender dysphoria, but does not like identify as trans. Um, now she, there, there's certain contexts where she's fine with that label, but she is suspicious of some of the philosophical and theological assumptions that oftentimes go into, um, you know, uh, people or world, you know, people that would identify as trans. So again, we, we, we're going to get into that at great length in the upcoming, um, conversations. So if you would like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash theology and raw. And also, uh, next week, my book embodied, uh, transgender identities, the church and what the Bible has to say, uh, releases. So you have one more week to take advantage of some of the, um, the pre-release, uh, pre-order, um, um, incentives, I guess is what they're called. So if you pre-order the book, uh, before it comes out of February 1st and you get some, uh, extra perks like a webinar with yours truly and a, a lengthy video that kind of explains some of the backstory that's involved with, that was involved with writing the book and some commentary on each of the chapters. So you can look at the show notes for details on how to take advantage of that pre-order, um, package of incentives. So without further ado, let's get to know this wonderful, wonderful, beautiful human being, my new friend, the one and only Renee. Welcome to uh, Theology in the Raw for the first time, my new friend, Renee. Renee, how are you doing on this afternoon? I am doing wonderful. This is fun. <laughs> well, thanks so much for being part of this uh, conversation. Um, in fact, I don't even, I, I, we may have corresponded through, I'm not sure if I told you this, but um, this is part of a three-week series I'm doing called The Diversity of Trans, and I'm just trying to um, interview a whole wide spectrum of different people who would be somehow under this large umbrella of this thing called trans, whether they um, identify as trans or experience dysphoria or used to identify no longer. I mean, just a whole wide, interesting spectrum. It's going to give me a lot of emails. So, um, so so you're part of a a really interesting conversation. Um, Why don't you begin by just telling us your story, your background, and would love to hear um, your 
you know, how gender dysphoria fits into that. And would love to hear your theological journey up until uh, present day. <laughs> <laughs> Just the little bit. Um, yeah. So I, I was born to wonderful Christian parents. Um, absolutely nothing bad to say whatsoever. I have no stories, no horror stories from childhood. I had a wonderful upbringing. Um, I was their little girl and I still am. And I always will be. Um, and I, I was not a particularly introspective kid. Um, not terribly impressed with logical fallacies or anything like that. And so, um, I just, I just lived my life and did me up until a certain age. Um, I, I, I grew up with brothers and I had this, I had this intellectual comprehension that I was a girl, but at the same time, I, I, I didn't have any sense that that was different from being a boy. I just, um, you know, this intellectual detail of being a girl didn't at all impede the fact that I was just one of the guys and could be anything I wanted to be and do anything I wanted to do. Um, so little incongruence there. Um, just wore whatever clothes, my folks gave me, I was just busy living my life. Um, I, I would say around the age of like six or seven, I remember getting really tomboyish. I was really into cowboys, really into horses. I remember I had this blue t-shirt with horse heads on it and I loved wearing that shirt and jeans and cowboy boots. And I was, I was just all about that life. <laughs> and then, um, that, that continued for years. About the time I was 10, I made some interesting friends. Um, they were part of a, a plain church. It was kind of like Mennonites. Um, not quite, but every, everyone dressed like Mennonites, basically. <laughs> and for some reason, this resonated with me. And I started, I started dressing like them. And I, I struggled to explain this, this time of life. I think it's kind of strange. Um, so from about 10 to 13, I looked like I was Mennonite and in retrospect, I think that was my way of, of telling people around me that I was different than their perception of me. Very bizarre way to enact that. But I, I, I was trying to communicate that I wasn't what they thought I was. Um, so that went on for three or four years. When I was 14, I, I became a Christian and the very interesting thing that happened Shortly after that was that I I desisted from all that Amish nonsense. <laughs> you stuff. desisted from the um, okay, that's yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just I took off the dresses, I put on pants. Uh I very much went back to sort of that that tomboy phase. Um and yeah, the dresses were just a thing of the past. Don't know what to make of it, just me being bizarre. Make of that what you will. Um and, and so I, I guess I had this thing with clothes minus that little dress period. If I could just dress the way I wanted to, I didn't have to think about my body. Again, I wasn't very introspective. I realized this looking back after the fact, uh, I just, I didn't want to think about it. Hmm. Um, and that was that I went to college when I was 17 and that's when, um, I really started to sense that there was some, um, social incongruence um 
between who I thought I was and who people perceived me to be. Um, and so I would just make friends with guys. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I hung out with one professor a lot. I was in his office like every day. He was very kind to me. And years after the fact, uh, he told me that the other faculty had come to him and were like, why is Rebecca in your office every day? Like they thought I was after him creepily or something. And <laughs> he told me, you know, that later, much later that he, he told them she's not up to anything and I'm not kicking her out of my, my office. And that was perhaps the kindest thing anyone has ever done for me. Um, wow sticking up to the entire faculty of yeah. the college like that. Um, it was a very small conservative Bible college. Okay. So, yeah. um, yeah, I remember we had, uh, um, like formal events twice a year. And at the first event I wore a dress and I looked ridiculous cause I had no sense of fashion and I still don't. <laughs> um, but after that, I never wore one ever again. I looked ridiculous after that too, because I just wore like, uh, slacks and, um, a guy's collared shirt. Um, during this whole point, I had no conception of trans anything, absolutely nothing whatsoever. This was not a category for me. I didn't, I didn't realize that some people switched genders or, um, had surgery, nothing, absolutely nothing. Um, I had been taught from a young age that homosexuality was an abomination. And that was my sum total of anything that <laughs> didn't fall within heterosexuality yeah. or cisgender experience. Um, so I graduated from college, lived some life, went some places. Uh, four years after that, I went to seminary. And that, for the first time, was where I, I started to think more in categories of um, gender and what it would be to be trans. And that basically came about because of two um, two incidents, both of them uh, social. And um, one was a baby shower. My my best friend at seminary, uh, his wife got pregnant. Uh, they she invited me to the baby shower. Of course I went, and um, it really bothered me. <laughs> I remember sitting there thinking, uh, I am not like all these other women in this room, do they realize that I am not like them? Or is this just me seeing something that they can't see? And I thought about it for weeks and months after that. Super bothered me. Um, and then the second thing that happened was one day I, I had the realization that no matter um, how hard I worked, no matter how much study I did, I would never be accepted in the church as I wanted to be because I had the wrong biology, basically. Um, mm. So I could study the Bible and theology all day long, but um, that would still not matter as much um, as it would as if a man did it to my professors and yeah. to my family and to my church. And so uh, basically those were just a couple social incidents that touched off an exploration of of what gender was and um, what it would be to be trans. It took me a long time to even begin to think of myself in those categories because I had so much internalized, you know, yuck factor, I yeah. guess, against the idea of being trans. Um, can, can I ask you real quick? Because um, yeah. you haven't mentioned the term like gender dysphoria, but would you say you're experiencing 
mild, moderate, severe gender dysphoria at, at all? Is that part of, is that kind of woven into everything you're saying? And how does that fit in with the whole Amish phase? <laughs> I know that, that is just nuts to me. I, I find it embarrassing. People don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do with it. So you know, like psychoanalyze me and put that in some category. <laughs> Let me know. Um, absolutely. And again, this is something I, I thought about in retrospect. Okay. Um, yeah. During the time, I, it's not like you had a category or a label. Oh, you just, no, there was just, not a, at all. okay. I didn't have a category for this until I was well into seminary. Um, mm -hmm. so this, the realization of all this is pretty new. I put, I put all these pieces together in retrospect and it was okay. just like all the, this whole puzzle coming together. Mm -hmm. Um, absolutely gender dysphoria throughout all of this. Um, I think it was highlighted by social experiences, but mm. there has always just been this low grade discomfort, um, with my body, um, with it in totality and also with specific aspects of it. Um, that's never been officially diagnosed. Okay. I've, I guess I've never cared enough to go get it diagnosed. I don't know what that would achieve. So mm -hmm. I recognize that it exists. When I listen to the stories of other trans people, I, I resonate with them. I realize that we are, there is some aspect of my experience in the world and their experience in the world that uh, overlap. Okay. Um, did you, would you, did you ever feel like leaving aside the scientific and philosophical credibility of the statement, mm. but did you ever <laughs> feel like you were born in the wrong body? Like there was some essence of maleness that you, you were. And yet you had a mm. female body. Was it that strong of a disconnect? Or because I know a lot of non-trans people hear the phrase born in the wrong body. And I've tried to help people understand it. People typically aren't making a scientific claim. It's just that's the <laughs> best kind of way to describe what it feels like to have typically moderate to severe dysphoria. Um, does that phrase yeah. at all resonate with like did that resonate with your experience or yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um again, I I consider myself to have a fairly mild form of dysphoria. Okay. Um, I think I always have, but there always has been that sense that there is a mismatch that, mm. you know, my, uh, my sex body is somehow um, something superfluous that mm. if I could just discard it, I could kind of get at the real me intellectually. I know that's ridiculous. Theologically, I reject it philosophically. I think it's bogus scientifically <laughs> it's ridiculous, However, that's what it feels like on some sort of subjective level. I want to come back to the theology. That's interesting that you, <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, that's, that's, I mean, I want to come back to that. Um, um, <laughs> and also during the, if I can ask, I, I think you kind of hinted at it, but um, were you, are you like a, a same sex attracted? Like, is that all wrapped up in the experience too? So, I'm actually or, not, which oh. I know is fairly atypical. Yeah. Um, nope. I, I like guys. I am definitely straight. Um, okay. and I, I know that's odd, um, in this experience that, but what that, can I say? um, <laughs> that is different. I mean, in my intellectual understanding, again, looking on from mm. the outside with loads of gaps in my knowledge with males, you have a lot more, um, diversity in, in who they're attracted to within the male trans experience within the female trans it's large I don't know the percentage but mm -hmm. overwhelmingly same-sex attracted so that that is I've, you, that oh. too. I've never heard a story of like uh 
a woman with gender dysphoria who is attracted to guys. So I'm curious about that as well. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I keep interrupting your story. So. Oh no, you're fine. Yeah. I think I've babbled on long enough to give the impression <laughs> that I'm as bizarre as I am. So. So you want? <laughs> so then you decided to pursue kind of theological education. You have, mm-hmm. and I would imagine because you've been to some, you like you said, conservative schools, and you're you're mm-hmm. in a more conservative evangelical seminary now um uh is that does that does that um do you still resonate with that b- brand of evangelicalism or <laughs> uh they're my people and yeah. i think that's you know the lord has placed me in a particular place with particular people yeah. in a particular tradition and i cannot just um lightly abandon that yeah. and so i I own them as my people. Um, but at the same time, I'm, I, I'm not an easy person for them to have around. I don't think I, I take some major exception to a lot of, uh, characteristics of evangelicalism, I think. Yeah. How are you treated? I mean, um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. How, how, how's that going? <laughs> uh, being somebody who, who doesn't fit kind of the stereotype of the kind of person that would be in this theological journey has it been good or difficult or um mostly good at the same time i've really um made a point to not make gender the centerpiece of my existence and so it it's not the litmus test i use um when i encounter an individual and begin to explore relational possibilities with them Mm -hmm. um I have some very good friends here who I've just never discussed this with. And it's not because I don't trust them or they wouldn't um, respond positively. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, I have every confidence they would have my back and take a posture of humility towards me. Um, It's just, I don't know why it has to be the defining aspect Mm -hmm. of my life. So yeah, I, things have gone well. And to the extent that I've shared, um, you know, my experience, I've been received positively. Okay. That's on an individual level, though. I I don't know what um, institutionally would happen um, if I was to be more open about it. But what, I, I guess my question, oh, what is the it? I mean, so you, ex- and I know you're, cause you're, so you're not like, quote unquote, I don't even know if this is the right phrase, but like <laughs> a- out or, but you're, I mean, there's so many. I'm not. I mean, it's I'm like you're, you're a human like... who wrestles with some level of gender dysphoria. Mm-hmm. So that puts you in the camp of a very, very normal, typical human who's wrestling with whatever. I mean, we all, you know, there's all kinds of things that we are wrestling, and not to minimize the uniqueness of gender dysphoria. Um, mm-hmm. But what, I mean, because you don't, again, I don't, I, I <laughs> words, you don't you're like, good. I or do you identify as trans? Is that term a label that, um, you use to describe yourself even internally or privately or, or no, or how would you describe yourself? Um, I will use it and own it depending on the context. It depends how the person I'm talking to defines it. Um, I think it, it has some ontological baggage possibly that a word like gay doesn't. Mm -hmm. And so I'm a little more hesitant to pick it up and pin it on my shirt. Um, I'm perfectly fine 
um, describing myself as gender dysphoric. I think it's a bit more awkward, um, yeah. but it fits a little bit better what I think is actually my experience in the world. Uh-huh. I'm not trying to be trans anything. Like I, yeah. I think femaleness and maleness are immutable. Um, and so I'm not, I'm not actively trying to change that in any way. Okay. So like, yeah, I guess I would use the word gender dysphoric, but before I would use the word trans, but it would depend on the context. It does. Gender dysphoric does feel a little clinical, right? I mean, I, and I, I use the phrase, um, most people I know, are okay with the phrase. I haven't seen a lot of backlash with it, but it just, it doesn't, it's hard. There is no kind of in between air, like tight phrase between mm-hmm. gender dysphoric and trans. It's not so clinical and yet not as, as you said, ontologically potentially problematic um, with mm-hmm. trans. What, what? So I'm curious, can you unpack, you said you have some problems with some of the ontological implications that the term trans often conveys can mm-hmm. you unpack that a bit for people that don't know what the term ontology means? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> uh, the word trans seems to describe not only my experience in the world, but some essential aspect of my being. If I'm understanding properly how other people are intending me to use it, if I use it. And so I would like a word that simply differentiates my experience from a cisgender experience, but I don't want a word that is saying I have, I am in my inmost being a man in a woman's body because I don't believe that it doesn't align with my uh, theological convictions. It doesn't align with my faith. Um, I very much believe I am a woman, even Mm -hmm. though sometimes the feelings don't match up. The experience doesn't quite uh, cooperate sometimes. Why why don't you believe that you can be a woman in a, or sorry, a man in a woman's body or, or vice versa? I mean, um, um, philosophically, I struggle to understand how we can take terms that have historically applied to biological sex and somehow then turn around and also apply them to my my subjective sense of self. I don't understand the chain of logic there. If you understand it, please explain it to me. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I guess that would be why. Well, if, yeah, I mean, um, this, I mean, cause I th- this is really kind of the heart of so much of the debate surrounding trans. And oftentimes I don't, I, I wish people can kind of boil it down just on a clarity perspective. I know everybody's mm-hmm on different, you know, like really angry, there's so much anger, right? Tension. And de- <laughs> but it's like, if we could just yeah. settle down a little bit and boil it down to what are the fundamental questions where we are, that, that we are giving different answers to it. And I think that is the question is when we, you know, so biological sex, we all know what that is, but then you have mm-hmm. this newer concept of gender identity which is almost always described as an internal sense of self as male female Mm -hmm. both or neither Mm -hmm. what is that essentially ontologically what is that internal sense of self um is it a separate property of human nature that is as and i'll use the phrase one more time ontologically significant as biological sex or is Mm -hmm. it 
a response to biological sex that may be right, may be wrong. You know, if, if my internal sense of self, if I am male and that's just, that's just either are male, female, or small percentage Mm -hmm. might have an intersex condition. Um, then that, that is factually who you are. Now, if your internal sense of self disagrees with that, then is that disagreement more true to who you are and why, you know, that's, I guess how I would. And, um, as I understand it, there's, there's probably two main arguments in favor of kind of gender identity being this kind of independent, significant aspect of personhood. One would be the brain sex theory. Like somebody could Mm -hmm. have the brain of the opposite sex, right. Um, Mm -hmm. or to a lesser extent, the sexed soul theory, like, Hey, yes, I know I'm male, but my soul is female. I think mm-hmm. both of those are problematic and, and can't, I mean, this is chapters eight and nine of my book. Um, so I, um, but it's not, I mean, I get, I, I, this, I don't want to make this podcast about me. I'm trying to like, does that, does that, is that how you understand kind of the potential, um, arguments, I guess, in favor of seeing gender identity as just kind of robust, independent aspect of personhood. Is, is it the way I'm describing it? Is that, does that resonate with how you've wrestled with it or? Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess the way I, I'm presently thinking about this, and this is very time capsule as I've told you, this is something I'm, I'm still thinking through. Um, I, I guess the best I can do with this category I hear of as gender is to consider it my orientation towards my biological sex. Um, and, and that is the most sense that I can make of it. Mm -hmm. So I'm either in line with my biological sex or I'm, I'm somehow, um, opposed to it. Um, Mm -hmm. but I, I, I don't understand how one can take the category of maleness or femaleness, man, woman, um, and change it from biology to this inner psychological sense of self. I I don't understand how that works. Mm -hmm. Um, So I can talk about my relationship to my body, um, but I think what people are trying to describe when they talk about gender may have more to do with personality than with mm-hmm. sex, you know? Yeah, yeah. So does that make any no, sort totally, of sense? No, totally, totally. Like, I very much read, you know, I just, I forgot. Yeah, I, I had you read a paper I wrote and you gave amazing feedback, but it wasn't my book. I keep talking to you as if you've read my book. Um, I have it. I'm really looking forward to it. I will probably be much more clear on all this myself after I read it. I, I, um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I think you'll very much res- resonate with it, which the fact that if you resonate with it, that means more to me than if some non-gender dysphoric uh, oh. per- person does. So that that's, um, yeah, because that, that's the biggest accusation or critique really is because I don't have this experience. I don't know what, what I'm talking about, you know, which which I, I in no way would I ever claim to say, here's what it feels like. It's not a memoir, you know, um, it's, it's not an autobiography, but I there are so many philosophical, scientific, theological, psychological mm-hmm. concepts that undergird and are intertwined with this whole entire conversation. And just, I mean, how do I say it without sounding like a, just because you experience gender dysphoria doesn't automatically make you an expert in brain sex theory or, 
you know, oh, the sextal, yeah. you know, like they, it, there's, um, there are, there is a philosophical theological conversation that also needs to happen alongside the relational mm -hmm. um, conversation. Um, did you ever, if I can, um, I've got so many questions. Did you ever consider transitioning? Is that ever part of your journey? Um, were you entertained that as a relief or? Only in the most abstract of terms as a thought experiment, honestly, um, because by the time I encountered these categories, um, you know, I already had deep theological commitments. I had already become a Christian. Um, I had already received some theological education and it was pretty clear to me that transitioning, at least in my mind, um, would run against the grain of, you know, the world as God intended it to be. And yeah. so, uh, that was, that, that was never really a, a serious consideration. What about, um, again, you may kind of mention this in passing or hinted at it with the, with the baby shower. What, <laughs> what, what role do gender stereotypes play in maybe your journey or specifically in re how it, is related to the level of dysphoria you experience. And I'm asking because other trans or gender dysphoric friends of mine, you know, um, when they're in a real strict kind of environment where gender stereotypes are being promoted, it typically kind of exacerbates, <laughs> aggravates their uh, dysphoria. Is that true to your experience? Oh, absolutely. Um, and in fact, if, I hadn't spent three decades in an environment with such intense gender stereotypes. Um, I am not sure that the gender dysphoria in my experience would have ever really risen to the level of anything more than subconsciousness. Um, I think it was intense sort of cultural pressure to be a certain way in the world that brought it all up to the surface. Um, and I very much understand that, you know, not conforming to gender stereotypes is not the same thing as gender dysphoria. I get that. But, and I have no answers to the nature versus nurture debate, none whatsoever. But I, I do think that, um, if there was something there before nurture, um, three decades of being nurtured in, uh, evangelical gender stereotypes probably made it worse. <laughs> do you see, I mean, do you see gender stereotypes being, promoted consciously unconsciously like a lot in evangelicalism it's a little bit of a loaded question <laughs> not loaded but it's kind of i'm throwing you a softball but um yeah no everything is gendered there's literally nothing that's not gendered and uh in my mind the world would be a much happier place if we could just maybe recover a focus on our common humanity and you know not fixate on whether or not we're men or women or i'm not saying throw that out it's a essential aspect of our humanity, but that is not the totality of our humanity. So I, I mean, everything, everything is gendered. We can't sing a song in church without breaking into parts. I mean, <laughs> there's no escape from it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've been in a church like that in years. That's funny. But it, it, really? Still do. Yeah. 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 Um, well, you come down and visit mine. We'll sing some parts. <laughs> <laughs> um, Wow. Gosh, I have so many different questions. Yeah. So you, you, you made a distinction between gender dysphoria and stereotypes and the way I've tried to describe it. We'll love to hear if this, if you resonate with this, like gender dysphoria just kind of comes from within. You could be in a room by yourself. That's not gendered, <laughs> and it just comes, it springs from within. It's hard to explain. 
but stereotypes mm-hmm. are more from without, like it's just kind of mm-hmm. external aggravation um, that's been mm-hmm. very much, and, and those are kind of in, as some have described it to me, they kind of play off of each other, but we can't just say somebody gender, gender dysphoria just wants to live out the stereotype of the other sex. Um, yeah. Yeah, no. Um, very much so. Actually, I was thinking of my, uh, my sister-in-law. My sister-in-law is an awesome human being. She's a hotshot firefighter, actually has worked in your state, and um, she could beat my butt any day. I mean, she does everything um she's she's amazing very outdoorsy has like biked across alaska crazy stuff um you know but at the end of the day she put on a wedding dress and she married my brother and that is something i could never bring myself to do um so both of us are definitely bucking gender stereotypes but uh at the end of the day there is still something that separates me from my biological sex. That's not separating her from her biological sex. So it's a step beyond stereotypes. So you couldn't get into a dress like a wedding. Would that just be oh, so? Oh, oh my gosh! Once I was in a uh, a wedding as a bridesmaid. I said, "This is this is what friends do for one another." Um, <laughs> it was terrible. It was like out of body experience. I gave the dress away the same day after the wedding. I was like, "I hope I never do that ever again." <laughs> Was it really like psychologically really difficult? I mean, were you? It was. It was. I find wearing a dress to be super, super upsetting psychologically. Really? Um, I just mm, mm, can't do it really. (laughs) Every once in a while, I'll almost psych myself into it and then no, can't do it. Is there, I don't know if I've ever asked anybody this question. Because in every trans or gender dysphoric person I talk to, you know, clothing is a big, mm-hmm. it's very much either can exacerbate or, or help relieve dysphoria to some extent. Mm-hmm. Good friend of mine, we were doing a filming project together and her dysphoria really started to flare up and she had to run and get her baseball hat and put her hat on. Aww. Yeah, I know. It's like, she's like, can I wear it? She's all like almost in tears. Can I, can I, do you mind if I do this in, in a hat? I'm like, yeah, of course. Like, but it was, Aww. you know, that for her, that was, is there ever in your personal opinion or experience mm-hmm. a, a, a line that you try not to cross when it comes to clothing? Cause I know some people are always going to back in their mind and say, what about Deuteronomy 22, five? What about cross-dressing? What yep. about now in, in our Western country, there's so much crossover with mm-hmm. dress, that, especially for females. You, you can, there's a lot of stuff you can wear that, you probably enjoy wearing that you're not like cross-dressing, but is there anything in your experience where you're like, ah, because of my convictions, I'm not going to put this on or wear that or whatever. That's a great question. Yeah. And <laughs> is it offensive? I, I, I hate asking oh, it. No. I okay. Oh no, not at all. Um, yeah, you are so right. I feel very fortunate in living here in Western society like this to have many options to choose from. I mean, if I was in some countries, I would, the dysphoria would be out the wazoo. I wouldn't be able to handle it because of the clothes I would have to wear. Um, in my mind, I, I, I do wear guys clothes, but I am not attempting to present as a guy. Okay. That is always the line. I very much, um, have decided not to cross. I am never going to dress myself with the intention of making others think that I am a guy. 
Um, so some of the clothes I wear, it's just practical. I have really wide shoulders. I don't fit into girls' shirts. I, I can't wear them. And so I just, I wear a lot of guys' shirts. I feel more comfortable in them. Um, when you say guys' shirts, I, what does that even mean? Like you, like in the men's section or I just, do. yeah. Like okay. the little cut of women's shirts is too narrow for my shoulders. And so I mostly have guys' shirts. I have like one women's shirt and I'm always like kind of hunched over cause I don't want to rip the shoulders out. <laughs> It's ridiculous. <laughs> and your hair, you have short hair, right? Or do you have a... a... It's fairly long. I, oh, you do? Oh, I could see it back there. Yeah. Okay. Oh, you're... Yeah. That's also a thing. I would I would love to cut it, but um, for the sake of people in my church, I don't because I think they would see the cut hair and it would just be... Um, they, they wouldn't know how to deal with that. I'm not sure it would be a thing that would actually edify the body. Just for me, I would I would totally cut it if I was the only person on planet Earth. <laughs> that, kinda, that, that bums me out a little bit. I mean, there's loads of women who have super short hair that are mm -hmm. gender dysphoric. They get away with it. You would actually for really. Sure. Yeah. I, so... Now, this is just something for me. I, I would never place that on everybody else. The thing is, like, people mistake me for a guy already because I do wear guy shirts. I'm pretty tall. Um and so how tall are you okay oh you? five nine i think it okay. just yeah. not really tall yeah, just yeah. you know fairly tall yeah. so uh sometimes i get mistaken anyway okay. even though i'm absolutely not trying to be so i feel yeah. like if i did cut the hair you know everybody would mistake me for a guy what about like makeup and nails and oh, all that stuff oh. is that like uh, same thing with dresses is it all <laughs> exactly it's i i'm very proud of the fact that i've never worn makeup a day in my life and i never intend to <laughs> really wow yeah. <laughs> that's yeah um and can you put your finger on is, is it that those things are associated with a brand of femininity that you just don't resonate with or can you even put your finger on why those cultural um signals of femininity are so difficult yeah i i don't know that there's any great objective logic to it um just for me that is those are the lines into um stereotypes of what it means to be a woman that i i simply can't live into with any sort of integrity it's mm -hmm. it's so out of line with my personality that I would just feel like I was, it would be like dress up. I'd be living a lie. Mm -hmm. And ever, ever since I did become a Christian, I, whenever I have, um, attempted to present myself in a more stereotypically feminine way, I I've tried, it's always been a failure. Um, and I've always had the thought this, this is not what God wants from me. Um, this is, this is a lie. This is not true to my personality or to what he's called me to. Mm -hmm. So I honestly, there's been some freedom in just coming to terms with the gender dysphoria. I, I don't mm -hmm. try to put on dresses anymore mm -hmm. and I don't, that's not something I'm, I'm forcing myself to do or to be. Well, so there... I might not, sorry. No, you go. Yeah. Well, I'm not pretending to be a guy, but I'm also not pretending to be a girly girl. Which and that's that's the beauty about the biblical presentation of womanhood um, is yeah. that it doesn't create these narrow boxes of femininity and say you must mm -hmm. live this out. You have a the way I've said it, said it is you know the I I do believe um, mm -hmm. not just I believe I think it's true but, but that you know mm -hmm. sex is binary. There's male and female. Um, mm -hmm. Again, we can talk about intersex, but um, but 
the Bible is very loose in how we can live out our male or female identity, like very flexible, beautifully flexible. Jesus himself challenged the Roman and Jewish um, perceptions of what it meant to be a masculine man. Um, mm -hmm. Many biblical characters push back against those cultural uh, stereotypes. Um, and that, and, and some people have even used that to say, therefore, they stand in for kind of a trans identity. I'm like, no, that kind of, in a roundabout way, that very logic promotes the stereotypes, you know? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you can be a stereotypical, ma more masculine female and you haven't violated anything in scripture, but to say, well, no. no, they're not really female, they're trans. It's like now you have drawn an arbitrary line saying you can't be a more masculine typical female if that makes sense is that is that resonant i mean you kind of oh, totally yeah. yeah no i think um both church culture and secular culture are drawing from the same well with this hyper fixation on uh gender and gender stereotypes it just manifests a little differently in both cases wow yeah, yeah interesting um is there anything that you do or that aside from the aside from social environments where the st stereotypes are kind of being promoted, what can you do to lessen your dysphoria? I mean, that's always kind of, that's kind of the million dollar question is how do we solve this? How do we alleviate this? How can some people, especially when it's more severe. So in your case, you know, it's more mild, you said, <laughs> but what, what are some things you can do that do lessen it, you know, or what would be your advice to somebody maybe that has even more severe dysphoria? Is there any kinds of advice you would give to say, Hey, maybe try this, try that, that, you know, I found this to be helpful in my journey or. Mm -hmm. Oh gosh. Well, I would never presume to advise anyone. Um, this has very much just been my, my own little experience in the world. I, I think it's very important to, to just be yourself. And I know that sounds cliche, but people spend so much energy and so much agony trying to craft themselves into the mm -hmm. gender version that they desire or whatever. And the fact of the matter is that, especially if I'm speaking to a Christian, I mean, if you are biologically a male, then you are biologically a male. You don't have to achieve that. That is something that has been given. And if you're biologically a woman, the same thing. And so there is nothing I can do to add to or detract from um, my biological sex um, or my, my maleness or my femaleness. And so that, that kind of, um, that kind of lifts a burden. If I think if you just accept that uh, you have more freedom to live into your personality. And I, I found a lessening of dysphoria by just doing the things that God's given me to do um, living into the talents and the gifts that he has given me, um, being true to my own personality, um, and not, not putting on a show for, for anybody, whether they want me to be more female or more masculine. Mm. Um, so I just wear my, my weird clothes, you know, and I'm, you know, yeah. there's a lessening of the dysphoria for it. Okay. Does that make any sense? No, it's, it absolutely well, does. Yeah. Like, <laughs> No, yeah. Um, what, what, I didn't ask you this. When did you, looking back, when would you say you first experienced what would be considered 
gender dysphoria? Was it really, really young or was it more in your teenage years? Or Well, it's all in retrospect. So, um, I wouldn't, um, describe it in, um, characteristic terms. You know, I, my folks gave me dolls and so I played with dolls and I was also out in the backyard punching my brother in the nose and rolling around in the dirt, you know? So like, I just, I, I did things, but I, I didn't have a well-defined sense that I was any different than a boy. Okay. I just kind of took it for granted that I, I was one. And again, intellectually, I had this piece that I was a girl, but that somehow just didn't sink down into my, my soul in any sort of meaningful way. I just assumed I was a guy who had this label of girl. And I know that makes absolutely no sense, um, but it's how I, I thought about it at the time. And I think it's the way um, the dysphoria was manifesting a little bit. Do you think it'll ever go away? Like, do you ever like hope for that or think it might, or do you just kind of like, this is part of it? Oh, it would be great. Like I would, I would love that. Uh, (laughs) I am not trying to construct my identity around this at all, especially not some sort of public identity. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I, as a Christian, I already have a hero and a community and a cause and a reason to suffer. And I, I, I don't need to seek that in a trans identity. Um, so I really have no motivation to keep it if it goes away by itself, but I don't really see it going away. I think yeah. it's, uh, it's probably here to stay. Okay. It's been three decades now and I, I see no reason that it's going to change. How can the church, um, yeah, how can the church and I, you know, you, you probably have limited experience and, and it's not like you're an expert on, all the churches in America, whatever, but as you kind of look on, I mean, how, what can the church do to better engage this conversation? Or maybe I, maybe I should even ask, maybe I should ask, uh, do you see the church um, engaging this, con- this aspect of the conversation, you know, the just gender dysphoria, trans plus, um, do you see it doing a decent job, a better job, a terrible job? And what can the church do to, um, yeah, to engage a conversation better. And I, I'm thinking both on like the, uh, on interacting with the kind of ideological pressures outside the church, but also the very the people within the church that are wrestling with this, parents, siblings, or people themselves who have dysphoria or identify as trans. It's a big question, <laughs> sorry, but um well, yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple couple levels to that question. Um you know, I think individuals in the church are great and people like you who are just hearing stories and listening to me babble, like, you know, way more about the stuff than I do. Um, but you are, you are attentive to my strange story and, um, you, you have an imagination. You are able to comprehend that your experience in the world, uh, is not necessarily the same as other people's experiences in the world. And you're able to understand that there are, other ways of being faithful to the Lord besides the way in which he's led you. And, um, you know, the individuals in the church who understand this are, are a huge blessing and, um, a refuge really. Hmm. And, uh, I really appreciate them. Um, corporately, you know, the church in America, what do I know about 
all the churches, but I I do see um I do see some trends toward fear mongering. Um, you know, I think ignorance leads to fear. Mm. People fear what they don't understand, of course. And um, I see a lot of ignorance about what it even is to have gender dysphoria. I mean, people are getting to the point where they can talk semi-intelligently about what it is to be gay, but you want to have a conversation about gender. And I mean, people are just drooling into their keyboards. So <laughs> um, it, I, it, it would be a blessing if people could educate themselves about just basic terminology. Um, they don't have to get it perfectly. I'm, I can't even talk about it perfectly, but if they cared enough to learn about other people's experiences, um, that would be a good starting point. So term, you mentioned terminology. That would be a good starting point, you'd say? Like, just understand what we're even talking about. What are the terms? What terms shouldn't you use? And um... Yeah, yeah, just a, a basic dictionary. And yeah. um, add to that dictionary an, an imagination that says, yeah. you know, how is God meeting this person? Mm-hmm. And it might not be in a way that I'm comfortable with. Yeah. Well, what are some, mm-hmm. uh, do you have any, like, real quick obvious terms that either you well let's just start with ones that you don't like or that you hear and you're like uh can you please not say that or the or just that reveal kind of a certain level of ignorance or oh oh yes i grew up with one almost every sunday not every sunday i'll be fair but almost every sunday the uh pastor would uh wrap up his sermon with a uh a litany of the world's evils. There was alcohol, there was drugs, and there was homosexuality. Uh, there was liberal politics, and there was transgenderism. <laughs> and I, to this day, hate the word transgenderism. I'm like, what is that? That just uh, is a nameless, faceless, uh, personalityless enemy that you can vilify. Um, but there are actual people behind that word. Um, who could be living their life in any number of ways, including, um, you know, in faithfulness to God. So really don't like that word. <laughs> Nameless, faceless. Say, say, do you remember what you said? That was a brilliant line. Um, oh, gosh. What did I say? Nameless, faceless, personality-less. Personality-less enemy, maybe? Something enemy that the- you can vilify. Yeah. I'm working on a blog on why... It's titled "Why I Don't Use the Term Transgenderism." So I'm going to quote you really? here, if you don't mind. Oh, I would like to hear more about this from you. That sounds really cool. Vilify. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. So, um, uh, it's there. There are some, a few contexts where I could see it being a term. I personally never use it, just because I never mm. want language to be an unnecessary uh, barrier. Um, so to the best of my ability, I try to use language that where there's other terms, more humanizing terms that are available. Um, Mm -hmm. there's also some, some phrases and stuff that would be more progressive that I, that I also don't use. Like I don't talk about sex assigned at birth. I I don't, that's conveying a reality that I think conflicts with, um, actual reality. But, um, yeah, transgenderism, it just sounds like a disease and it, it's, (laughs) Right. I mean, it, 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 but exactly what you said here, this, you, you, the words you gave to it are exactly my kind of intuitive, why I don't like it. Just this nameless, faceless enemy that has been propped up that you can vilify. And yes, there's ideologies, there's movements, there's things out there that Christians should understand 
dissect mm-hmm. and refute if if need be, or at least mm-hmm. provide a better response to, you know, um, but th- it's just too, it's just, you're collapsing so many different people under one term. Um, it's why I, I often, I mean, even though I have a book with the subtitle, I actually rarely use a term like homosexuality anymore. Or somebody, when someone says, do you think homosexuality is a sin? I'm like, what do you mean by homosexuality? Like I've got gay, sure. s- same sex attracted friends that are so sold out for Jesus that they're committed to celibacy, you know? And it's like, are they like, is that a sin? No, that's righteousness. You know, the essence of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I just really don't like broad breast terms when a more specific thing is trying to be communicated. Um, mm-hmm. But, Oh, but what I wanted to say is, especially for younger people, their intent, their antennas are up to, but they hear somebody say transgenderism. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes they write you off and mm-hmm. Real quick, I have a quick story. I was um, speaking on this topic at um, a, a school and um, a, a Christian college. And when um, when I was being introduced, um, the person said, you know, Preston's you know, becoming kind of a leading voice in tr- talking about transgenderism. And I forget how he, he, he used the phrase. No, but it, and honestly – well intended this guy's an amazing person you know and it's just yeah. people just don't know not you know and that night i met with uh an lgbtq uh student gathering oh and when i walked in the first you know it was kind of a q a or whatever and the first hand was like why did you i'm just curious why and it was pretty why did you use the term transgenderism and somebody else jumped in and said no he actually didn't and this whole debate kind of erupted when it was settled that i didn't use the phrase it's almost like my credibility, like quadruple people are like, Oh, I'm like, mm. yeah, I intentionally don't use that phrase. Like, Oh really? Like, you know, that that's not, that like, we don't like that. I'm like, yeah. I, I. So anyway, all that to say, um, deliberate avoidance of this term mm. can often be a powerful bridge builder. So, um, absolutely. There's no need to be unnecessarily <laughs> offensive. I mean, there's, there are enough ideological, chasms for us to bridge between the lgbtq community and you know the evangelical church we don't need to be trotting out these terms that just depersonalize people that's a great story (laughs) oh no and it solidified because i'd been like sober for about a year from using that term you know but it was the first time when i really saw like in practice how deliberate like publicly avoiding like avoiding the term um, mm-hmm. I even I even had a guy. Uh, I just did a radio interview a couple of days ago, and he quote he said my my book is titled "Embodied Transgenderism: The Church and I'm like, oh no, no, it's not called that. It's not, anyway, what other terms? Know, okay, I so transgenderism. Are there other terms that uh, or phrases or things you hear say that just kind of irk you? Oh, I'm also not a fan of the word agenda in basically any context. I'm like, my agenda is to be an Orthodox Christian. I'm sorry that's offensive to you. And I, <laughs> I, I, how do they know what my agenda is? You know, it's an, again a depersonalizing word that doesn't really do anything except stoke fears. Mm-hmm. Yep. What about yeah. um? Uh, this was people made a big deal of this a few years ago. Um, transgendered versus transgender, is that uh, with the D, the E, D at the end? Is that a big one or, or kind of like uh, whatever? Or... 
you know far more than I do in this particular case. <laughs> I was not privy to that part of the conversation. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I, I think just grammatically transgendered. I forget, I forget the exact explanation, but it's just, it doesn't just grammatically doesn't fit right when you talk well. about a person as being transgendered, like that something happened to them or, you know. Yeah. Um, President, I, <laughs> please coin a new term for us, something that I can use to just describe myself in a snazzy, <laughs> succinct way. I will be eternally grateful. <laughs> How about a child of God image bearer who is female, period. <laughs> That's great, but a bit too long for the Twitter handle. So. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, hey, any, any, uh, we can wrap things up. Any last parting words, pieces of advice, um, um, challenges to the church, or even maybe parents with kids who um, maybe are wrestling with their gender identity? Wow, that's a weighty responsibility. Um, <laughs> I think friendships are very important. Um, I think they're the context in which um, dysphoria will be diminished. Um, people will uh, come closer to their creator and to one another. Um, if we have weak friendships, it's going to be very difficult to make any headway in this entire conversation. Um, if we're not willing to approach the other and make them another self um nothing good can happen and so i yeah i think be a good friend yeah that's, that's a good my, word that's a good word and that's <laughs> yeah um oddly enough it's been my uh typically lgbt mainly the l's and the g's within evangelicalism that have helped me understand the value of friendship especially the ones who are living a life of singleness um where friendship is not an option it's mm -hmm. the heart of their relational existence you know it's it's how mm -hmm. they have deep intimacy which we all need right you can live without sex but you can't live without intimacy is is what they often say and so but it, what's to your point um we like straight non-trans whatever we are people we often suck at this you know and it's it's I, i've um yeah i think we've hidden behind you know marriage or hidden behind you know broing it up whatever um and um yeah it's i'm so thankful for my lgbtq christian brothers and sisters who have taught me the importance of friendship so that's a yeah a here here yeah. Me tons as well well, thank you so much, Renee. Uh, best of luck in your uh, your theological adventures, and maybe one day we can meet in person. It'd be fun. Preston, that would be great. I really enjoyed this. Thanks so much. I did too. I learned a lot. No, thank you. Oh.